Amen. You may be seated. If you don't have a sermon outline, I want to encourage you to take one from these men that are running for the center aisle and uh, down here to the front. I want to encourage you to take one. This morning, you will need one. And in fact, if you're with us online, I just want you to know at any time, you can go online and download these, out, these outlines, and uh, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, the way that we teach in the life of our church, it will make so much more sense for you if you have one of these outlines in front of you. I want to encourage you to take a pen and be ready to follow along. Part of the reason that we provide the outline is so that you can pay attention now in a very interactive way. I know the life is busy. You've got a lot of things on your mind. Um, I tend to be, I've always been, an ADHD person, and so I can lose track real easily uh, with what's going on. And uh, for those of you that are like me, um, this will be a help to you. And for those of you who already pay attention well, you'll be able to follow along. But as well, the point of this is that you can go home and look back through and really study during the week. I pray that you will allow these messages to pour over your life because God's Word is worthy of that. Last week, we looked at God's true children abide in Christ. We see that great and beautiful call to remain with Christ, to abide in Him. And as we're going to see this morning, that that call um, will differentiate between God's children and the devil's children. And so that is what we come to this morning. God's children are the children of God and the children of the devil. And so our passage is there in the box in the center of the page. I want you to notice it there. We're going to read it first, and then we're going to launch through uh, this as we move this morning. This is 1 John chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 3 this morning. This is the last verse that we looked at last week. So just so you know, verse 3 is a transition verse. With the way John writes, he's always... Allow, his, his writing is beautiful. It's artistic. When you read the Gospel of John, it's that way. And when you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's that way, but especially 1st John. And what he does is he transitions from thought to thought. He brings two thoughts together and releases into the next. And that's what we see. Last week we read verse 3. And anyone who thus hopes in him, look what he says next, purifies himself as he is pure. So there's this picture of, of we're moving from the concept of abiding in him and staying, remaining with him, and anyone who remains with him, this is what happens. He, he's being made pure by God. Now verses 4 through 10 have a lot to do with our purity. It has a lot to do with our obedience versus our worldliness, our sinfulness versus our righteousness. And so notice here in verse 4, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Can everybody say amen to that? Okay, let's read that again. Look what it says in verse 5. You know that he appeared, why? That was very weak. You know that he appeared, why? Awesome. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. We've just been in starting point talking about that. The holiness of God, the fact that God is holy. There's no sin in him. And so we even see that He's going back to chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, In God, God is light, and in him is what? No darkness, what? At all. No darkness at all. So we, we kind of see that. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Look what it says in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, what does it say? Is of the devil. 
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Underline that. He cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. These may be some of the most disturbing words of the New Testament, in a way. They can also be some of the most encouraging words of the New Testament, if we understand them correctly. But let's make no doubt about it that this was written to church-going people. This is not talking about those who practice lawlessness. The the, the idea here is not all of those outside the church so much, though that, that is very true. John is writing to people who called themselves Christians. And throughout the Gospel of John, we see that he is seeking to make clear those who are Christians and those who are not. You see, he had been alive long enough and he had seen churches long enough that he knew that there was trouble in the churches. I want you to notice as we are looking at this that there are some key words. In chapter, or or in verse 3, we see the word everyone. Can you circle the word everyone? Look at verse 4, you see the word everyone. In verse 6, you see no one. Can you circle that? No one. In fact, it's there twice. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him. Look in verse 8, look what it says, whoever. In verse 9, it's no one. In verse 10, again, we see whoever. So we see everyone, everyone, no one, no one, whoever, whoever. So this is really talking about the people that are there in front of him. And it's talking about the fact that we can know who we are based upon some very critical understanding of our obedience or non-obedience. This is making a distinction between one and then two. So notice here, fill this in, important background understanding. The The true church has always maintained that Scripture clearly teaches, that, excuse me, that Scripture clearly sets forth basic standards of belief and behavior as necessary marks of genuine saving faith. So throughout history, we see, and throughout the Scripture, we see that what you believe is important and what you do is important. So notice this, belief that sinners can be saved only by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the most central, important belief that a human could ever know. In fact, it's starting point for those of you that are here. It sounds like two sessions, almost back to back here. The same thing, because this is the basics of the gospel. The belief that by faith we trust in the death of Christ for our sins and the resurrection of Christ for power over our sin and death. This is doctrine that is so critical. But you can believe that, and this passage is revealing to us that you do not know God. You see, behavior is this, that the lives of true believers will reflect the life of Christ. The lives of true believers will reflect, it, they will be like, they will show the life of Christ. So these two markers that we're talking about here, belief and behavior, have continuously, continuously been under attack for the last 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, Satan and a fallen world has attacked true belief in the gospel, and it has attacked the behavior of the people who claim to believe it. 
So Satan hates God and he hates his people, the true church. Fill that in. That's what Satan hates. He hates God and he hates his people. And God is always associated with his people. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We see that throughout the New Testament. That's why when we look at the church, this is to be God's people. And Satan hates the gospel and obedience to it. He hates the doctrine of the gospel. He hates the truth of the gospel, so he wants to distort it. But if he can't distort the truth of the gospel, he also wants to go for and distort obedience to the gospel. So he's attacking belief, he's attacking doctrine, he's attacking all of that which we hold in the body of truth, but he's also attacking our obedience to it. Now, we need to study and consider church history because church history really can help us see this battle clearly. It can help us clearly know what is happening around us. In fact, in October, we devote quite a bit of time to church history. Um, It's one of my favorite things to do is to stand before you every couple of years and go through the last 2,000 years of church history. And many of you have said, I love it when we do that. Many of you have said, it's so cool to hear how God has worked from the beginning to where we are now, how we got here. And what is, what is the very clear um, path of church history? Well, that's indeed very important for us as we look at this struggle, the, the struggles of belief and the struggles of obedience. You see, one or both of these two pillars are always under attack. And notice that I put some parentheses here. You see, there are distortions of Christology. What is Christology? Christology is the study and the knowledge of who Christ actually is. And in fact, from the first century, there was, there was um, controversy and there was deception over who was Jesus really. And so we had, the, in the first 400 years of the church, there were councils meeting to say, what does God's word, what is it saying? How can we interpret this to understand who Jesus really was? Was he in fact God? They said yes. Was he in fact sinless? Indeed. Was he in bodily form? Yes. Did he die for our sins? Yes. Did he rise again for our sins? Yes. Was he fully God? Yes. So those councils met together and they looked and they prayed based upon what the Bible says, based upon what Scripture says, who was Christ? Now that's a very important question. Who was Jesus? Because if indeed he is the Messiah who can save you from hell, Satan would love to confuse you about who he is enough that you cannot trust in what he said and what he did. And so Satan attacks Christology. He wants people to be confused about who Jesus was. What about the nature of Scripture? Is the Bible from God? Is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible true and true in every way? You see, we see throughout history that there have been attacks upon the Bible. And in fact, um, in our own lifetimes, for many of you who've been alive for the last 70 or 80, excuse me, I'm going to even go back to 50s. Those of us in our 50s, since the 1950s, in the 1960s especially, the, the movements of classical liberalism made it to the streets, made it to the churches. And there was great question over the scripture in the nature of that. We called it the battle over the Bible. And praise God that the Southern Baptist Convention turned away from the movement toward classical liberalism of denying the scripture as the inherent, the inerrant, infallible word of God, turned back to that great calling and that great belief that the Bible is reliable. The Trinity. The Trinity is an extremely important doctrine that is often under fire. People confused or people coming up with ulterior understandings of what the Bible actually says about the nature of the Holy Spirit, the nature of God the Father, and the nature of God the Son. And of course, soteriology, if you would, put a line above that and just put out there, salvation. Soteriology is how is it that you are saved? 
How is it that one can come to actually have peace with God and know God? How does that happen? That's what we were just covering in, in starting point. That is soteriology. Very, very important. Well, those doctrines are often under fire by Satan, seeking to confuse the church. Not only all these beliefs that are there on that one line, but look at the next line. It has to do with our behavior. Is the church filled with ungodliness? Is there worldliness in the church? Is there selfishness, sensuality, apathy, greed, pride, and everything else that comes with those issues? Those attacks are continuous. So the Apostle John is dealing with those things in his letter. You see, in recent decades, you can fill this in, there has been a great decline and distortion of biblical doctrine and beliefs. In fact, we kind of went into a period after the 1940s where very little doctrine was actually being taught. And then when we hit the 1960s, everybody was starting to move toward other things, felt needs and interests and other ideas, three points in a poem. People would say, well, no one wants to sit still and hear the doctrines of the faith. People are busy. People have... Uh, distracted minds, not really interested in those things. Doctrine even became to some degree a bad word among many, something that they were turned off by. We come into the 80s and the 90s, even more complete avoidance of doctrinal issues. A bunch more how-to sermons, how to be happy, how to be successful different series that come along about your interests and your felt needs. The Apostle Paul would write to Timothy and say, beware that there will come a time when people accumulate teachers that tell them just what they want to hear, tickling their ears and ignoring the truth. There's always been a movement against sound Bible truth. But notice this and fill this in. The results in bad theology... This results, when we decline and we distort that, we wind up with bad theology. That means false doctrines. And here's what bad theology does. Bad theology damns. It takes people to hell. When we begin to look elsewhere besides Christ for our only salvation, when we subtly teach works-based salvation, when we subtly teach moralism instead of sinfulness before a holy God that requires an atoning sacrifice. We send people down the road of a theology that will take them merrily to hell. You see, in recent decades, the church has become more and more like the world in its behavior. In fact, we want to turn the building into something that looks more like a nightclub than it does a place of worship. And our music would very often more resemble the music of the world than the music of praise and worship to God. In the life of our church, we say the style is not nearly as important as the substance of the music. What we sing and what it means is far more important than whether it has a violin or a cello or a grand piano or an organ or an electric guitar or a drum set. The substance of it is what matters above everything else. But when the church becomes more like the world, not only in how we look and what we do while we're here, but even worse, when we go home, we begin to see what John is writing about. We begin to see that there is a decline and distortion of doctrine and a worldliness. And what we start to see, here's the key concept, that bad behavior reveals bad theology. When the church collectively or when the church individually begins to live in sin, then we begin to see that we believe the wrong things. So as we've said even last week, 1 John, fill it in, is all about true, genuine, saving faith. 1 John is about true, genuine, saving faith versus fake, self-deceived religion. Even in the first century, John was combating that. 
as we in the 21st century are combating it as well. You see, fill this in. Um, this is a different, uh, maybe a different line of review for you. So this will be very interesting to you if you've been with us all this time. You've not seen these tests before. So I'm just, this is in a way new material. But lo- notice the scripture references on the side. If we were to go back and go through what we've studied so far, we see that there are multiple, fill it in, there's multiple tests that John is giving about whether your faith is genuine or whether your faith is fake. Number one, and we see this in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, do you recognize your own sinfulness? Or do you say, I'm without sin? Or do you say, I stopped sinning? Or do you say, well, it's not really sin? So John immediately launches off with the test of Do you recognize your own sinfulness? Because all have sinned. Number two, do you recognize Christ for who he is? Chapter two, verses one and two says that he is our advocate. He is the holy one from God. And that was under fire. Christology was under fire and John was dealing with that. And so the question is, what do you believe about Jesus? You're a fake believer if you do not believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, the advocate for those who are sinners in need of a Savior. Number three, what about chapter two, verses three through eight? It's, do you obey Christ's commands? He very clearly says that those who know him and love him will obey him. Chapter two, verses three through eight. Number four, do you have a problem hating others? Are there people that you hate? either individuals or groups of people, classes of people, races of people. The Bible says very clearly, if you hate the people that are around you, you are not gods. As in God's children. Number five, do you love the world instead of God? That's a very critical one for us in this day and time. It is so tempting to love the world. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. Do you love the world instead of loving God? Do you, I mean, are are you fine to watch whatever the world is sending you? Are you fine to go and engage with whatever the world says is the value? If so, you do not know God. And what about the one that we studied last week, number six? Do you stay with Christ in his church or do you leave? Do you go away from him? In chapter 2, verses 18, he makes very clear that they went out from us to show that they were not with us because if they had been with us, then they would have stayed. Another way to say it is faith that falters before the finish was faulty from the first. I know, I'll include it later. You don't have to worry about trying to write that down. Faith that falters before the finish was faulty from the first. That means that it never was right. And that's what 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 24 is talking about. Now we come to the seventh test. And the seventh test is, do you practice sin or do you practice righteousness? So now John is really meddling. He's coming down and he's having us to really look at our lives and say, is your life fine to continue in sin or have you by the grace and the power of God been learning to walk in righteousness so this test and it reveals whether you're part of the children of God or the children of the devil I want you to notice page 2 all of scripture puts a continual emphasis A continual emphasis on repentance and obedience that should be expected in every heart that has been transformed by true salvation. So all of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, emphasizes repentance and obedience. Now there's many people in our day and time that say, oh no man, all you need is God's grace. You just need God's grace. In fact, You may not even know him at all, but, you know, by your coming and seeking to just be like him, you're coming, you're you're trying to act like him, you're trying to do things. It's called moralism. You're, You're trying to be a good person. 
you're, you're, that's all you really need, and it's just grace, that's just it. And there is no mention of repentance or obedience. My friends, any gospel that does not also preach repentance and obedience is a false gospel. And we know that from Mark chapter 1, Jesus' first words in preaching, the first words that he addresses the public is repent and believe the gospel. That's what he comes and says. Now, you're not saved through your repentance, but if you are coming to God in faith by the grace of God through the gift of faith, you're going to repent. And so there's a call to repent, and those who are being saved by the gospel will repent. They will obey that call. And if there is no repentance, there is no salvation. There are many today that proclaim the grace of God, grace of God, grace of God, the free grace of God, and they distort that free grace of God by never mentioning all that the Bible says about coming to God and obeying God. And so people come in, they have a very emotional, very fun, very uplifting, perhaps worship time with the chills up and down their back and all of the great feelings of that. They hear a very positive message and then they leave having taken in and imbibed a false gospel. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now that's chapter 1 verse 6. Do you remember what chapter 1 verse 5 says? In chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, and this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that, let's say it out loud, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, you're remembering it now. What is the message? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now look at the very next verse. Verse 6 is, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this concept, this test that we're looking at now, this test number seven of do you walk in darkness, do you practice sin, or do you practice righteousness is really right there at the beginning of this entire letter, right after the main premise. The central premise is that God is light and him is no darkness, and anyone who's going to walk with God is also going to walk in light and not walk in darkness. And so there's plenty of people that claim to be in light. There's plenty of people that say that they're a Christian. There's plenty of people that would pass themselves off as that, but yet go on to live the way that they want to live. There's an important grammatical understanding to this, and we're going to do this very quickly. I want you to see this. It's very, very important to properly understanding this passage of Scripture. Notice right here under this important grammatical understanding. In this passage, the verbs related to sin are all in the present tense. They're not in the past tense. They're not in the future tense. They're in the present tense, indicating continuous, habitual action. And this is very important to understand this. They're in the present tense. They're, they're saying that this is ongoing. This is present. It's the case now, and it's the way it is. It's continuing. Now, what I've done is, on this box, it's a little bit different. Notice that the box at the top of the page. I have kind of underlined these verbal phrases. Makes a practice of sinning. That's in the present tense. Keeps on sinning. That's in the present tense. Keeps on sinning again. Practices righteousness is righteous. So that's, that's one referring to righteousness, but we see it's also in the present tense. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Um, notice down in verse 9, he makes a practice of sinning. So each one of these, you can start to see, they're in the present tense. Now what does that mean? Go back to your notes there. John is not referring to occasional acts of sin. He's not referring to 
the man, the slip up where, man, this just, I didn't mean to think that. I didn't mean to go that way. I, I shouldn't have done that. And, then, and boy, I, I even chose it. I chose it wrong. I didn't take the way of escape. So it's not the occasional act of sin, but instead what he's zoning in on here is the established, fill it in, the established and continual patterns of sinful behavior. So that's what we begin to see John is talking about. And that is a real problem in the church today as it was 2,000 years ago. And we need to recognize and fill this in that sinless perfection is not possible until we are finally with the Lord. At different times through human history, there are people who have claimed to come to a place of sinless perfection. In fact, we see hints of that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that the Apostle John is writing to people who think that they have arrived. Now, he didn't say, just go ask your wife. He could have done that, I guess, because she could make clear. But he, he is talking about, and, he, and we see hints of that. And we see hints of other distorted views about sin that has to do with, well, as long as you're right in your spirit, then you're right with God. This is incipient Gnosticism, the idea of your, your knowledge of God, your knowledge of Him, and it's, it's kind of a high elitism spiritually. Anything you do in the body is okay because God's not really interested in the body. What God's really focused on is the spirit. So it doesn't matter how you believe, it doesn't matter how you deal with your flesh. You kind of just can go ahead and feed the flesh, do whatever you want with that. That's really separate than who you are spiritually. That's Gnosticism. That was, a, that, was a fault. that was a heresy that the Apostle John was dealing with. And, you know, we kind of deal with various forms of that even in this day and time. Things that come along and say, well, it doesn't re- you know, God doesn't really mean that you're supposed to be like him. I mean, look at the world around you. That would be no fun. God certainly couldn't mean that. You see... The truth of the matter is, the already is that we are justified right now through Jesus Christ. That is the true gospel, that those who are in Christ have been made right before God. But not only that, the not yet is what we await. It's the eternal state of no longer struggling with sin. But if you continue in sin now, practicing it without repenting of it, and fill it in, forsaking it, then God's word makes clear that you have not been redeemed. That means saved. I'm going to read that statement again. It's the last bullet point there. But if you continue in sin now, practicing it without repenting of it, and forsaking it, then God's word makes clear you have not been redeemed. I didn't say it. The Bible says it. Here's the key concept. Forsaken sin is forgiven sin. Forsaken sin is forgiven sin. Sin that is not forsaken is not forgiven. We see this a little bit in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, the question is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer to that is, the strongest negative in the Greek, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live therein? So the picture is, is that we don't just say, well, God loves to forgive and I love to sin, so we got a good deal. The Bible says that is incompatible with the true gospel. And so that's what John is seeking to help us deal with. Now, it's very interesting. John deals with this, and he gives Christians three reasons that true Christians do not habitually practice sin. True Christians do not habitually practice sin. We see the first one in verse 4. Look at verse 4, and in fact, I'd like to ask everyone to read verse 4 together. This is a short one, the next one is a long one, and then the last one is a short one. Look at verse 4, let's read it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness. So the first one is this. Number one, sin is not compatible with the law of God. Sin is not compatible with the law of God. God cannot be separated from his law. It is God's law that shows us who God is and his righteousness. And so everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's interesting that the further you get away from almost any type of law, the more heinous a society becomes. There are places of the world that have less and less and less law. There's other places that have a law of law, a lot of law. Now, here's what's interesting. You can have a lot of law and still be just as lost, but when you have very little law, all of the the corruption and all of the violence and all that is there becomes increasingly heinous, increasingly unbearable. And this is why there's even some pagan governments that are far, far better than total anarchy. There are some repressive regimes, and we've kind of learned this over the last 20, 25 years in North Africa and the Middle East. There are some repressive regimes that even though they're, they're not very honorable and they're dictatorial and they're totalitarian regimes, you remove them and it can even get worse. I mean, we see that in Afghanistan, we see that in Syria, we see that in various other places of the world where there is an order that God calls humans to live by. And the greatest order is the law of God. Notice this. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one, underline it, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's obedience, right? Look at verse 22. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty, many mighty works in your name. Verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. And what does it say? You workers of lawlessness. Don't turn it over. Look at that. Look at it. And he will declare to them, verse 23, and he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in in verse 4, up at the top of your page, look at that box. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness Sin is lawlessness. Flip the page. Notice this that we also see on page three. Instead of being bound by lawlessness, notice this, instead the true believer goes from being a slave to sin. This is the true believer. He goes from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness. And by the way, slave to righteousness is not a bad thing. That's a happy thing. That's a good thing. It may be hard at times. There may be parts of it that are difficult. But that winds up being our beautiful salvation in Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. I mentioned that just a bit ago. In Romans chapter 6, 1, it says, how shall we continue in sin? But look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Underline that. From the heart. You see, God has to do heart surgery. That's how we overcome sin. That's how we stop practicing sin and we start practicing righteousness is when God comes and does open heart surgery on us. Notice what it says here. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin have become, underline it, slaves of righteousness. 
That's a beautiful deliverance. You know, I've, sometimes we need to look at very um, blatant examples, very obvious examples of things in order to see the way it works, not just in the most extreme of examples, but also to the less extreme of examples. And when I was 26 years old, um, Marcy and I were privileged to be involved with planting a church in St. Augustine. And as we were planting the church and things were going forward, um, there was a woman in the church who was a very wonderful, godly woman, and her son, who was, I would say, 30 years old at the time, 31 years old, he was um, not at all walking with the Lord, had totally rejected Christ. He was a very big, rough guy. His name was Chris Bush. He weighed about 300 pounds. He was 6'2". He worked at a, an aluminum extruding factory. He was just one of those huge guys that would move around very heavy pieces of equipment and do all kinds of things. And um, we stopped by one day and um, invited him to come to church um, because we were on a youth scavenger hunt. We needed popsicle sticks. And he said, well, I got a bunch of popsicles in the freezer. And I said, well, can we have your popsicles? And he said, yeah. And so he gave us a box of popsicles. And, yeah, it was just a thing. You get the kids out, have fun, and get to know members of the church and all that. So he was just sitting there on a Saturday while we were doing this. And I just looked at him as we were leaving, and I said, Chris, I've enjoyed getting to know your mom, um, but I, I just want to ask you, will you come to church? Just come to church. And he just looked at me like, oh, brother. He said, yeah, I'll come. So he came to church, came to church the next day. I preached the gospel, and um, he, he left immediately, like so often does. Didn't know anybody, didn't want to talk to anybody, just ran for the car. I ran out the door to try to catch him a little bit, and I captured him a little bit. And I, I remember touching his arm. It was, like, it was just like touching one of these pillars of concrete. <laughs> it was just it was rock. And he shook my hand, and it hurt. And um, I said, hey, man, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came. He said, yeah, yeah. And he ran for his truck. And he said, I said, man, you, you ought to, we ought to hang out sometime. And he goes, yeah, that'd be great. And he got in the car and he left. Well, um, I reached out to him that week and told him I was glad he came and hope he would come again. And I'll never forget, the next Sunday, I certainly didn't expect him to be there. There was probably 30 or 40 people there. And big Chris walked in. He sat on the back row. And when I gave the invitation at the end of the service, he nearly knocked down two or three people <laughs> as he ran down the aisle and he fell at the aisle at, at the altar and he just began to weep and sob. He said, I wanted to do that last week. But he said, I didn't really understand. I talked to my mom more and he said, I need the Lord. And he gave, his, he gave his life to the Lord. Well, that started week after week after week and really day after day of spending time with him. Early in the mornings, we'd have breakfast, we'd read the Bible together, spend time. And after about a year and a half, he started saying, I, I feel called to the ministry. Today, Chris is a pastor in North Carolina. But listen to his testimony. He said, Andrew, you have no idea what God was doing in my life. He said... I was hopelessly addicted to cocaine. And he said, I could keep my job, I could do my thing, but he said, I, was, I could not break free. He said, I hated cocaine. I absolutely hated what it was doing to my life. But he said, I'd drive around and the voice would call me and my, I, would just, I would just desire it and it would come to a place where I couldn't do anything and I would find myself once again driving back to the other side of town to go buy it. And he said, I'd go and I'd snort it, do whatever you do. And he said, I'd have the thrill and the high. And he said, the whole time I would just come out saying, I hate but he was a slave to it. He said that as time went on, God came and began to take away that being a slave to cocaine. God began to deliver him from that. And he said, as time went on, 
I no longer was, I found I was no longer bound by the cocaine. That which I had tried to stop for a decade, God came and stopped in a matter of short matter of time in his life. So when I read a passage like this, and when I think about the struggles that you and that I have with various areas of sin in our life, the question is, is the victory and the freedom of Christ setting us free from our potty mouth or our gossip mouth or our negativity that is kind of poisonous to everyone else? Or maybe, maybe you just really have a struggle, you, you struggle with lying. You just quickly lie, you lie to get out of a jam, you lie for this, you lie for that. Or maybe you, maybe you have a problem with lust. Maybe you have a problem with greed. Maybe you have, I mean, I hate to name them because I'll miss yours. But we all know the things that are not right in Christ. The question is, are we under the bondage of those things? Or are we under the bondage of Christ in saying, because of his work in my life, and I've come to see that he sets me free from these things that I could not be free from. Look at verse 17 in that Romans 6, Romans 6 passage, verse 17 says, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. What a glorious truth. So the first one is that sin is not compatible with the law of God. Number two, sin is not compatible with the work of Christ. So the first one is like God the Father. The second one is like the work of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And we see there's in 5, 6, 7, and 8. Look with me in verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Look at verse 5, that outline there. Christ came to take away sins. Isn't that glorious? He came to take them away from us. And he is holy. And there is no sin. There's no darkness. Remember 1 verse 5. In him is no darkness at all. But interestingly enough, generally speaking, we know and think far too little about the holiness of God. You see, this is one of the great problems of the modern church, is that we've not recognized the true nature of God, the holiness of God. So therefore, because we don't talk a lot about the holiness of God or think very much about the holiness of God, we don't think very much about our holiness. And this is why when we go and we really look at the Scripture, we see if there's anything that's outlined that God is in Scripture is, is that He is holy. And this is why chapter 1 and verse 5 is the central verse of the whole, of the whole text, that in Him is, that He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In fact, I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 6, the beginning of it. It's Isaiah's vision, where Isaiah has a vision. He's before the Lord, and he falls down on the ground, and he says, Woe is me. I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My friends, you would do well. I would do well to spend a lot of time thinking and learning about the holiness of God. There's a great book by R.C. Sproul entitled The Holiness of God. There's a great book by A.W. Tozer entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. Both of those are in our bookstore. I would encourage you to read those. They can be life-changing as you look and you see and you learn of the grand holiness of God. And we start to see that this is why Christ had to come. And this is why he came to set us free. In verse 6, look up the title in the box on the page, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In verse 6, notice this. It is impossible to abide in Christ and to live in sin. You can't abide in Christ and live in sin. 
If you can live in sin, you cannot live in him. This is why God sends his Holy Spirit to convict us, to show us our sin, and to move us out of it. Some people would rather live in the misery of the conviction of the Holy Spirit than to live in the grace and freedom that comes from getting right with God. What about verses 7 and 8? Look up at the box on the the top of the page. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So in your notes, anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to deceive you. That's what happens is people come in and say, oh, no, it's not that big a deal. It's okay. Or they never mention it at all. And that is part of the great deception. And we see that in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. So God's true children need to recognize that ignoring the holiness of God and ignoring our own sin is a deception. Fill these in. Righteous life reveals righteous standing with Christ. An unrighteous life reveals wicked standing with Satan. That is very clear in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice, look at verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Christ came to reverse the work of Satan. And my friends, what a glorious statement that that is, that he comes to destroy the works of the devil. He comes to destroy the devil's bringing of us away from God. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it is this one who is going to be the seed of God in Eve that is going to bruise the serpent's head. That's what Genesis 3.15 is talking about. John 12.31, Hebrews 2.14, God destroys, Jesus destroys the work of Satan. So sin is not compatible with the work of Christ, and John is trying to help us to see that. But the last two verses show us that sin is not compatible with the Holy Spirit. So it's not compatible with the law of God, it's not compatible with the work of of Christ, and it's not compatible with the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this in verse 9 and 10. Look what it says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, here it is, For God's seed abides in him. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. This is God's seed comes to abide in him. Let's go on. It gets clearer. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident that we are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this seed of God, the Spirit within us, is what causes us to be born again. Look at verse 9. Being born of God only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not draw you to God and give you the grace and the faith to believe, you cannot believe. The Spirit draws us to God. And his spirit lives, fill it in, within his children. Every true believer has God's Holy Spirit. There are some false doctrinal people who will say, oh, you don't have the spirit if you don't speak in tongues. That is a lie from the pit. That's not true. You have the spirit the moment that your heart is saved through the grace of Christ. God's Spirit comes to live within us. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Look at John 3, verses 3 through 8. Those of you who turned it over have to go back. The priest Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and we see this. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that means of his mother, and, of, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that picture of water can also be, some would say, that in a reference to baptism, the picture of coming and being immersed in in Christ. But the Spirit is critical to this. Notice this in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said you must be born again. Look at verse 8. He describes the way the Spirit works here. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. No one tells the Spirit who to save. No one tells the Spirit what to do. The Spirit of God is what accomplishes the will of God in the way of God, and that's by His Spirit. Now notice this, page 4. The instrument by which the Holy Spirit gives new birth to sinners is the Word of God. You cannot be saved apart from the truth of God, the Word of God, the reality of what God has said and done. In fact, we see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. You see, that's how you've been born again. It's through the Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the field, of the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord does what? Remains forever. And notice this, and this, is, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So it is by God's Word that we are saved. This work, fill it in, this work of the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. And this is a monogaristic work. Monogaristic work means this. It's all Him. It's not a, it's not a synchronistic work between you and Him. This is God. God comes and saves us. This is His work. It's not as a result of us. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 makes this exceedingly clear. Notice what it says in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In verse 4, what does it say? But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There's the motive. His motive was love. In verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there's some people who just don't understand. They, they, they say, oh no, I figured it out. No, no, I came to God. I finally found God. My friend, God found you. He brought you out of darkness. He called you to search he caused your mind to realize it has a void and it has a need. And there was a hunger. If you had a search, it was because the great, glorious God of salvation was causing you to see your need and calling you. You see, a dead man can't do anything. When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it's not that we're flailing around on the surface of the pool saying, hey, help me, help me. No, we're at the bottom of the pool. We're at the bottom of the pool, and he comes and he gets us off the bottom of the pool and says, let me make you live. And so, friends, we can do nothing except come when we hear his voice call. And if you hear his voice calling you to say, 
Leave this sin. Leave this way of unrighteousness. Leave your unbelief and embrace the Savior. Oh, friend, today embrace that and say, Lord, come, let me live. So, key questions for reflection and application. Number one, has God's Spirit caused you to be born again? Has His Spirit caused you to be born again? Some this morning indicated that they prayed to receive Christ this morning. Perhaps God today, in starting point, led some to transfer trust to Christ and to begin their journey with Him through belief. What about you? Has God's Spirit caused you to be born again? Here's another way to ask that. Are you clearly trusting in Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Or are you trusting in yourself, your good works? That's one of the first things for us to look at at a passage like this. Are we born again? Are we trusting in Him? Because here's the great question. Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? Number two. Here's one way we can know. Do you obey Christ's commands? Well, the next question is really important because you can't obey them if you don't know them. Do you know Christ's commands? Some people say, well, what do you mean? I I don't know what you mean. Well, exactly. You need to know what we mean. There's many commands of Christ. And by learning in His Word and studying His Word and coming to walk with Him, we come to know what His callings are. Have you been baptized as an outward confession of your faith? You say, why is baptism coming up? Because that's the first command that you need to obey, is to go ahead and be baptized. There's some people that say, oh, I'm I'm a Christian, and I love the Lord, and I this, and I that, and everything, and have you been baptized? No. I don't like water, and it, it might mess up my hair, and people would see my hair in the water, or, you know, that... When he's called us to identify with his death as as seen in the grave of baptism and his resurrection, to, to picture that to the world, to proclaim that, to be identified with him. Are you growing, fill this in, are you growing in obedience and holiness? So maybe you have been baptized, but are you growing in obedience? Are you becoming more holy? Are you on an upward path of sanctification? Or would you say, oh, no, I used to be on that, but then, you know, I, th- I got tired and things have got, gone too well and I'm just kind of static or I'm flatlined. We know God calls us to be continually on the upward path of sanctification. And is that an easy path? No, it's not. But it's a worthy path. Number three, are you living? Here it is. This is what John is talking about. Are you living in habitual sin? Is that a problem to you? Because some people might say, yeah, I am. But that's just me and the Lord's, I mean, I guess he's just got to love me the way I am. Well, friends, if you really know the Lord, he really does love you the way you are, but he will not tolerate you continuing to live in your sin. And he calls you to embrace his righteousness. And if you're his, that's what you're going to do. Will you continue in your sin? Or will you abandon it? Well, here's number four. Very important question. Do you know Christ's plan for overcoming your sin? Because he has a grand, glorious plan to overcome your sin. And really, the greatest place that I could turn you to are the four chapters of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Overcoming sin. Understanding what Christ has done, understanding his call to obedience, and understanding the power of his spirit for you to obey. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Holy Father, this morning we have read these glorious words that remind us that we are to not live like the world, and that if we're really yours, we will obey. Father, I pray at this moment 
for those in this room that have never truly come to Christ and that they have realized that this morning and that they need to do that. I pray, Father, that they would be born again by receiving the Savior who died for them. Father, I pray that they would not leave this place today without saying, I need to talk to somebody about my own relationship with Christ. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to know on either side of the stage where the stairs are, there's a couple that is there that would love to talk to you about how you can know that you know that you know Christ. Others this morning would say, well, I know Christ, but I seem to be stuck in some areas and this concerns me. Indeed, I pray that it does. And I do, indeed, I pray that you will come and see the victory that there is in Christ over sin and death. And that true salvation would be lived out and worked out in your own life. Father, I pray that 1 John would find its mark in our hearts and in this church. I pray that you would reveal to us, Lord, if our faith is a faulty faith. Lord, if our faith is not a genuine faith in truly loving you and trusting you and turning to you. Lord, I know that you're calling some of us to just say, yes, Lord. I want to live in you. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would embrace the life of holiness, that we would embrace the practice of righteousness, that we'd put away all of our fleshly thoughts and feelings and grudges and behaviors that are not of you. And I pray that we would so prove to be your disciples as we obey in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.